after one night in Ada. Oh, I just love this. I'll never let you forget this, by the way. Uh, we were outside. We'd had a, oh, a church meeting of some sort. I think it was actually at his house we'd had a church meeting. And <clears throat> he says, you know, man, I really relate to you like more than any, either the, uh, any of the other elders. And I was like, I appreciate that. And he's like, you know, because you're the most immature elder. And he meant it sincerely. It was so, he didn't mean it nastily or anything. He was trying to be nice. And I was like, uh, well, well, thanks, man. <laughs> thanks so much. <laughs> Only guy I know. <laughs> uh, I've got some other good stories. We'll have to tell them later over like the Mexican food or something. Well, I want to share with you tonight a couple of messages. The first one is uh, kind of... Be, it has grown out of a lot of questions that I've got very, very commonly, and um, see if we can see if we can make this thing work. Maybe no. I'll have to have you, I guess, work it for me. But uh, I get two of these questions very, very often, in especially in the college setting, and so I want to um, I want to go over some of these these two questions in particular and kind of give you some some evidence that kind of backs up your faith, if you will. Um, first one that I get, I get very often is, maybe, there we go. Out of over 4,000 world religions, how do you know Christianity is the right one? There's all these religions out there, and you're going to tell me Christianity is right, and all of the rest are wrong. And I say, that's correct, yes. How in the world can you say that? How in the world can you look at all these other world religions... And how can you say that Christianity is so different? Uh, I was in a debate at East Central. Was that when you, you might have been still there four or five years ago now, six years ago. And they had me, they had a, a Muslim imam, they had a Jewish um, rabbi, thank you. I was like, you know, the teacher of the word. Yeah, thank you. Rabbi, they had a Catholic priest, they had an uh, atheist professor, and then me as, of course, the Protestant. And, uh, and so one of the questions that was asked to the whole panel, they would ask a question to the panel, kind of everybody got their own shot at it, right? And one of the questions to the panel was, do you all worship the same God? And that's what they all said, my good little heretic and my. But <clears throat> the, the imam says yes, the, you know, the rabbi says yes, the Catholic priest says yes, and I said, no, of course we don't worship the same God, right? Well, you, you all worship the one true God. I said, well, no. Everybody, we all say we worship the one true God, but if you came to the debate tonight and you told everybody, oh yeah, I came to the debate and, and uh, I, saw, I saw Paul Wilson, he was there. He's, oh, Paul Wilson, real tall guy. Well, well no, he was, he was short. No, 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 Paul Wilson, tall guy, big, incredibly handsome, that guy. No, no, this guy was like five foot two and blonde hair. And Okay, well, you may say that you saw Paul Wilson, but that was a different Paul Wilson. That was not me. If you have a religion that tells you, oh yeah, we worship the one true God, here are his attributes, and they are not the attributes that are listed in Scripture, that is not worshiping the same God. That is worshiping a God that you've made, a perversion of the one true God. It's just like the Israelites who are worshiping the golden calf. Remember what they said? Here's this golden calf. Behold Yahweh who brought you out. They didn't say, here's a different God for you to worship. They had a different God that they claimed to be the one true God. 
Why is Moses so angry? That's not, that's not the God of Israel. That's not the one true God. That's a perversion of that one true God. So first and foremost, we do not all worship the same God. But second of all, Christianity is different categorically, okay? If you can, a little bit of logic, if you can settle with me for a little logic. Categorically, Christianity is different. In fact, you could take all the other world religions and lump them into one. You can actually make a world religion's branching tree. You can put every single other world religion in one category, and you can put Christianity as different. And the reason is because Christianity has a different mode of salvation. Every world religion, and I do mean every world religion. I took so many world religion classes, three. In, uh, in my master's program. Every world religion basically says the way that you find salvation, you reach nirvana, you, the, the way to salvation is be a good life, do good things, right? You are saved by your works. Christianity stands alone and says you cannot earn your salvation. You are not saved by your works. You are justified and saved by the works of God. You don't save yourself. That's what every other world religion posits. Oh, if you're a good person, in fact, that was what two of those guys were literally saying verbatim that night. If you're a good person, if your good works, you know, you put your good works and your bad works on the scale. If your good outweighs your bad, you're getting in there because you're a good guy. The bad news is this. Your good works and your bad works are not on the same scale. You might say they're on different dockets. I want you to live a life where you are considerate of your neighbors, obviously. However, don't begin to think just because you're a good neighbor, that means therefore, i.e., you are owed heaven. God will look down on me on my good works, and since I was a good guy, he'll give me entrance. No, that's not true. No, if he looks down on you and he sees you, you're in real trouble. If he looks down on you and you are in Christ, then he sees the righteousness of Christ. You're not saved by your own merits. You're saved by the righteousness of Christ, the imputed righteousness of God, if you will. Okay, so how do I know it's true? Well, number one, it's categorically different than every other world religion. It makes a lot of sense to me if I see every other world religion positing this type of worldview, that those might all be flavors of the same error that's crept through different cultures and and been influenced by different cultures, and that's exactly what we find. Instead, in Christianity, we find the opposite, okay? So Christianity is different. It does stand differently, okay? That's the first question I get get a lot. Here's the other one, and this is the one I want to spend a little more time in. I get this all the time. The Bible's just a book written by men. How can you possibly trust it to be true? Well, First and foremost, we have to say this. It is true that the Bible is a book written by men. Obviously. We know a lot of the authors of those books. A lot of times the book author was stated. However, the question is not whether the Bible is a book written by men. The question is, is the Bible a book written just by men? Or is it the case that those men were in fact divinely inspired by the one true living God? If it is the case that these men were inspired by the one true living God, we should see some, if, we, if you will, fingerprints of divinity in the scriptures. One of the ways that I can look, I've had this conversation with some different Muslim friends over the years. <coughs> one of the ways that I can look at the Islamic holy writings, by the way, there's not just one holy book in Islam. Most people think that Christianity has the Bible and Islam has the Quran and it's kind of a flip-flop. That's not true. 
in Islam, there's at least four holy books. By the way, the four Gospels are counted as holy writ in Islam as well. So don't, don't begin to think that Islam is, is aping Christianity near that closely. It's not. It's not nearly the same religion. Okay? But if I look at the Quran, if I look at the writings of Muhammad, that's not true. Muhammad could neither read nor write. If I look at the writings that Muhammad dictated and other people who actually had an education wrote down, I see exactly what I would expect to see in a 7th century writing. I see a man who understands the culture of his time and believes that the culture of his time is more or less infallible. One of the things that the Quran posits as a, a way to cure certain ailments is the drinking of camel's urine. You going to tell me that's, oh, that's modern medicine right there. No, that's a man who's writing out of the, the understandings of the culture of his time. Okay? The Scripture has things that nobody should have known in that day and age, and yet it knew them. The Scripture has places where there are things that are said far beyond in advance and that come to pass verbatim by name. The Scripture has those evidences of divinity. Here's the first thing I like to ask in reply when someone says, how can you trust that book? It's just another book written by men. Ah, okay. Question, are you as skeptical about all other books that are, quote, written by men? It's typically they're not. It's whoever their favorite person is. Those books are, I mean, those are holy writ. Those are divine. Haven't you read what this guy says about psychology? No, why should I? Well, don't you know he's the greatest mind in the world? He's on the cutting edge. Haven't you read what Dawkins wrote about the selfish gene? Yes, and he was wrong. That can't be right. Do you know he had to come out and amend his own books? Because yes, he was wrong. Yes, science changes. It happened with chocolate, right? When I was growing up, you couldn't eat chocolate because it was way too sweet and there was nothing in it that was any good for you. And all of a sudden we found out, well, actually, cocoa has a lot of antioxidants. Oh, it's okay. You can eat chocolate now, just the dark chocolate, right? Science changes. Yes. Everybody's like, glory, hallelujah. I heard it here. Gospel. <laughs> I'm just loading up on antioxidants, right? Yeah, it's true. I, I like to tell my students, we just found out three years ago, scientifically, that coffee is loaded with antioxidants. So I tell them, see, I'm getting my big you know, load of antioxidants. Now, I don't know, I can't really lump the cream and the sugar into all of that. But, but the, the point of the story is, yeah, those books aren't on the same page. They don't have the same reliability. That science textbook that you think is so great and so infallible, it's going to have to be updated. I haven't even been teaching for 20 years now, just a little under 20 years. I've had a lot of science textbook updates just in that time. And yet the scripture was right, didn't need updating. It's infallible. It is inerrant. It speaks with total authority. I've had people say this, well, you're, this, the, the Bible is not a science textbook. That's true. I've had them tell me the same thing. It's not a history textbook. That's true. However, it is authoritative on every area of life. And in those places where it speaks on science, it speaks with total authority. And in those places where it speaks about history, it speaks with total authority. Let me give you some examples. All right. Let's talk about, go ahead, go ahead. There's a five. We're not going to get through them all. Let's talk about fulfilled prophecies. If the Bible is written by God, if it's inspired by God, if those men that penned the lines of the Scripture were being moved along as the Holy Spirit led them, we would expect to see that God can predict the future. As long as man's been alive, that's been one of the most common signs of divinity. 
How do you know that somebody is speaking divinely? Because they can predict the future accurately. You cannot, you got to get your word of faith friends here for this. You cannot accurately predict with 100% accuracy the future. Neither can I. But the scripture can and has and does. Let me give you just a few, okay? Let me just give you five. Number one, Isaiah predicted around 700 BC, that was more than 100 years in advance, that Israel would be taken captive by the Babylonian Empire. So what? Folks, Babylon was not the world power at the time. Okay, if somebody came in here today and said, hey, you Americans, you're going to get into a war and you're going to be taken prisoner by this other nation, and you go, who is it? Is it China? Is it Russia? No, it's Brazil. What? They're not even, that, it can't be that, right? You see where I'm going with this? That's what's going on. When Isaiah says, you guys are going to be defeated and taken captive by Babylon, who was the world power? Assyria. Nineveh. What? Babylon? Yeah, you're going to be taken captive by Babylon. Babylon just got destroyed by the Assyrians. Well, guess what? They're going to rebuild. They're going to beat the Assyrians, which, by the way, nobody had ever done that. No one ever had rebuilt a city after being raised and salted, and that's what happened to their city. They rebuild it, and their kids' kids, something like 40 years later, march in and take down the Assyrian Empire. And he was right on the dot. That was written uh, in about 700 B.C., fulfilled in 597. Babylon took captives and sacked Jerusalem for the first time. They would totally destroy Jerusalem about 10 years later, after a return visit, just to make sure they finished what they started. Number two, Isaiah predicted around 725 B.C., this is 150 years in advance, by name, by name, the man who would become the king of Persia and who would eventually cause the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. 150 years beforehand, you can tell me his name? You going to tell me that's coincidence? I had a person tell me one time, well, actually, probably what happened was they waited until after all of it was done, and then after it was all done, then they wrote it down. <laughs> See? To which I always love to say, what's your evidence for that? Well, that's just probably how it happened. Oh, so your evidence is your philosophical bias. Yeah, noted. Good evidence. That's fantastic. Yes. It couldn't have happened that way because one of the historical records we have tells us that the Jews took the Scripture to Cyrus to show him. Hey, our God said you were coming along. He says this is your name. He says you're his servant. He says you're going to let us go rebuild our, our city that was in rebellion. You think any leader of the world at that time ever let that happen? No. And yet Cyrus goes, you know what? That's a pretty big deal. Your God knew I was coming. You bet. Head home, boys. 150 years in advance, by name. There's not another book out there that can do that. Number three, Daniel predicted in chapter 8, around 543 B.C., more than 200 years in advance, that Alexander the Great, whom he calls the Great Gresham King, guess who else calls him the Great Gresham King? Everybody else in the world. Would conquer the Persian Empire, but then would have his kingdom divided four ways after his death rather than passing it on to his heirs. That is unbelievably specific. I mean, this is not one of those, you know, oh, yeah, I went down and got the newspaper, got my horoscope. It says, today's my day for looking for love, right? This is incredibly specific. It's not going to be split three ways, not five, not two. 
It's not going to pass to his heirs. Guess what happened? Alexander died suddenly, and he said to the strongest it goes, and his four big generals said, hey, that must mean us. Whoever's the strongest can have it all, and they go into war against each other, and all four are so strong, none of them can conquer each other, and they finally go, okay, that's it. Let's just hack this thing up. We'll split it four ways, and they had no idea when they did it. They were fulfilling the very words of Scripture. Number four, Josiah, the Jewish boy king who helped bring Israel back to God, was predicted by name, along with what he would do, more than 300 years before he's born. You're going to tell me you can predict something 300 years beforehand? You're going to tell me somebody not divinely inspired can get that accurate? Can you imagine someone uh, before, we even, before we even become a country? Somebody in the colonies goes, yeah, this guy named Donald Trump's going to be the president. They don't even know who those people are. 300 years in advance, by name. It's pretty good. Number five, Daniel predicted around 538 B.C., that's more than 500 years in advance, the very day and method by which Jesus would enter Jerusalem before his crucifixion. He tells them the day, the way, the gate, all kinds of other details that were fulfilled to the letter. 500 years in advance. You've got another book that does that? <laughs> I'm happy to read it. I just doubt you. Yes, obviously this is a book written by men, but it is not a book just written by men. It's a book written by men who are inspired by the very spirit of the all-knowing, all-sufficient creator God. Let's go to the next one. How about scientific evidence? It is unbelievable what the scripture knows and how far in advance it knows it. Let me give you a few of them. Now, I've got so many, I'm a science teacher, I've got so many of these, but I'm going to limit it. I'm going to give you just seven. We're just going to do seven. I want to do like 25, but let's do seven. First of all, Earth is freely suspended in space. That is not something that everybody has known. It seems very counterintuitive if you're living on a planet that it could actually be freely suspended in space. It's got to be held up by something, right? Who did the Greeks and the Romans think was holding it up? Atlas, man, it's being held up on the back of Atlas. Uh, who do the... Um, the Hindu, the Vedas, say that the earth is being held up by. And now imagine if this was the holy writ of your religion. Okay, This is Hindus worldwide. This is their holy writ. What do they say? Well, it's actually flat. It's a flat disc that's being held up on the backs of these giant elephants who are standing on the backs of these giant sea turtles who are swimming through the ether of space. You know what that sounds like? Sounds like to me somebody writing out of the thinking of their culture and their time. Obviously, that is not true. And yet, here we have in the book of Job, possibly the oldest book in the Bible, 1,500 years B.C., 3,500 years ago, says he spreads the northern skies over empty space and he suspends the earth over nothing. Job 26.7. Pretty good. When did we know that? Yeah, 15 and 1600s when we had people like Copernicus and Francis Bacon and Galileo and etc., etc. Here's number two. The universe is expanding, spreading out. Written first in the book of Isaiah over 700 years B.C. God stretches out the heavens as a curtain and spreads them out. And by the way, that's in the continual sense. Keeps spreading them out. You could also translate it as... That's interesting. 
written in the book of Job, oh, I'm sorry, written in the book of Isaiah, 700 BC. That's Isaiah 40, 22. That idea was scoffed at. And it ended up being proven true more than 2,600 years later. When did we know that space was expanding? 1929. We haven't even known it for 100 years yet. A guy who's very famous today first saw it. He noticed red shift. He realized, holy smoke, the entire universe is spreading out. Good thing for us it is. If not, we would be in a real trouble because there's lots of these big things called stars that exhibit a lot of gravity. Big crunch. Not going to be fun. Right? Edwin Hubble, 1929, was who figured that out. And the Bible was right more than 2,600 years in advance. Ah, it's just a book written by man. How about the earth is rotating? The Bible compares the earth's rotation to a clay seal being rotated over soft clay to make an impression, which is a very accurate description. Written in the book of Job, again, 1500 B.C. It's Job 38, 14, if you want to read it. When was it confirmed? By the great astronomer Nicholas Copernicus in the mid-1500s. He wrote his book, Revolution of the Heavenly Spheres, in 1543. I would love to tell you more about that. There's so much good church history in that, but we we don't have time. 3,000 years after the Scripture. Knew it 3,000 years ahead of time, and you're going to tell me it's just a book written by men. Okay, okay. Stars are too numerous for any man to count. That was first written in the book of Genesis, somewhere between 14 and 1500 B.C. The Bible claims that, by the way, numerous times, that the the stars were too numerous to be counted. There were Greeks who took issue with that. A guy by the name of Ptolemy, you may have heard of him, was really upset about that. That's not true. I can count and catalog all the stars. And he did. He counted all the stars. He came up with 1,056 stars that he could see. But he knew there's also, you know, the the earth is round. And so he took an estimate and he said, there's no way if I can count 1,056 stars throughout all time of the year from my place, there's no way there's more than 3,000 stars. What happened? Well, we... We had a guy named Galileo that came along, and he said, hey, these, these little spy glasses, let's make them into telescopes. Hey, let's make them really good. Hey, let's point them out there at the heavens. Hey, holy smoke, that star's not just a star. And a lot of other people came along behind him, and we, fi- we figured out that some of those stars were actually entire galaxies with three to 500 billion stars per galaxy. We thought we had figured out how many galaxies there were. Then we took the uh, Hubble Space Telescope about 20 years ago, or so, pointed it in one direction, and we decided, let's just put it on a, it's called a dark field. There's a place where there's no stars, there's no light, let's point it right there, let's leave it exposed, let's see if there's actually anything there. You know what we found out? Hundreds and hundreds of, not stars, galaxies, with, again, hundreds of billions of stars per galaxy. There's too many for any person to count. Right now, the estimate is Uh, You could have something like 700 trillion, of the ones we've discovered so far, about 700 trillion per person on earth. If you think you can count that, I'd be my guest. (laughs) To to give you an idea of how big a trillion is, let me just downstep one. Here's how big a billion is. If you would like to know how how big a billion dollars is, for example, if you came here on the the Mayflower, you stepped on on foot on shore, 1492, and you made $5,000 every single day, Sundays, Saturdays included, to now, you would still not have a billion dollars. And we're talking about 700 trillion stars. It's a number that I I don't think we can put our our minds around. 
Sunlight causes the wind. That was written about in the book of Job. Again, 1500 B.C. We didn't know that until recently. The, the wind moves about in circuits. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to kind of go quickly. The wind moves about in circuits. You may have heard of the jet stream, obviously. Jet stream has something to do with weather around here. Written in the book of Ecclesiastes, 930 years B.C., about 2,400 years in advance of when we learned about it. Scientists taking wind readings in Japan in the 1920s were the ones that came up with the jet stream, and yet the Bible knew about it 2,400 years in advance. Seven, the ocean has underwater springs. That was scoffed at. Written in the book of Job as well as the book of Genesis, 1,500 years B.C., was not confirmed until divers along the California coast in the mid-60s. This is pretty recent, scientifically speaking, 3,500 years later. The Bible knows things that no man of their time had any business knowing. To me, if, if you're looking at it with a very unbiased, unvarnished opinion, if you don't have a hard heart, and you're looking at that evidence, you have to say, this book, though I may not like it, though I may disagree with it, is not just another book written by men. This book has marks that tells me this book is not just written by people of their time. It knew things far too early. Let me give you one more. Go down. Uh, archaeological confirmation. We start digging all over the earth and we find out, holy smokes, that Bible was right. The same Bible that we mocked and we scoffed at, it's actually right. Here's one of them. I'd, I'd love to go into more depth, but 270 cultures today retain flood legends that mirror the biblical account. In one of them, a man named Nu'u got onto a big chest full of all kinds of animals, him along with his family of eight total people. You've probably heard that somewhere. That's a very aping, very close account. 270 cultures, folks. Why do all of these cultures have this account that mirrors the Bible? I've got an idea. Maybe it's because the Bible's right. How about the story of Jericho? Jericho was scoffed at and called a myth. Ah, oh, that, that place never even really existed. Until old Jericho was found. See, there's two Jerichos. There's old Jericho and new Jericho. And the thinking was, well, this place couldn't be what's being described in the Scripture. So obviously the Scripture is just wrong. It got the place wrong. It got the time wrong. It got No, it was talking about two different cities. And that was being scoffed at until the 1950s when a British scientist and atheist, I love when God does it this way, and atheist, Bible skeptic, named Kathleen Kenyon, accidentally dug up and discovered old Jericho. She said some really weird things about it too. Man, this place is really weird. The walls here, they fell flat. You see, walls in old city states would fall inward. All right, because when you went to war, everybody went inside, they closed the city gates. And then what happens is the people invading, they create what's called a siege ramp. They pile dirt up, they get a ramp, they, can, they know they can't get through the doors. So we're just gonna make a ramp so big we can get over the top. And the weight of all of that dirt pressing against the walls a lot of times toppled the walls inward. But these walls didn't fall like that. And she's like, that's really weird. <laughs> yeah, isn't it though? I got a book. You want more details? Number three, Hezekiah's tunnel. It was claimed to be impossible and a myth. It was claimed, Israel actually created this myth about Hezekiah's tunnel where they can get water in and out because the water source for Jerusalem is outside the city walls. Not exactly a great feature of your design. And so the story goes, 
in the scripture that Hezekiah dug a tunnel through all of his bedrock and he got water into the city so that when they were sieged, they could still get water without opening the city gates. And a whole bunch of, of people said, we've never found this tunnel. It does not exist. We've dug all over Israel. We haven't found it. We've dug all around Jerusalem. We've never found it. This tunnel doesn't exist. It's a fabrication. It's a lie that was told because Israel wanted its enemies to think it could get water, but really it couldn't. Until, guess what we discovered? Hezekiah's tunnel, 1800s, American Bible scholar Edward Robinson discovered Hezekiah's tunnel. Today you can take, uh, you can take little trips through it. I, I could not. If you're smaller, you could take little trips through it. If you're five foot tall, you, you might not have to duck much. But uh, it's not big, but it's definitely big enough to get water through it. And it's, by the way, it has standing water in it today. How strange. For King Sargon, that's Sargon of Akkad, the Akkadians. Hundreds of years, he was alleged by skeptic to be a myth. He's only mentioned once in the entire Bible, Isaiah 20, verse 1. So it was, uh, it's obviously just wrong. There's only one verse in the whole Bible that talks about him. Obviously, it just shouldn't be there. They were wrong on this point. It was therefore assumed that the Bible critics were right, and that Sargon was a complete myth until in 1843 he was finally discovered. His palace, along with statues and effigies of him, all of that was unearthed. Today he's well known among archaeologists and scholars, and he was scoffed at for years. Here's what I have to say if you decide to scoff at the biblical claims that you see. You will be the one, eventually, that will have egg on your face. You will end up being wrong. You may have to wait a long time, it may be even centuries, but you will be wrong. The Bible is always right. The Hittites claimed by decades to be a people group that never existed until they were found. The census of Luke, you may have read, right? The census of Luke, you know about that, right? We, we read it every time that Christmas gets around, right? Claimed by skeptics, by the way, to be a fabricated fairy tale lie. Nah, it just makes the literature better. After all, what Roman ruler would, would order all of his people all over the empire to go back to their hometown? That's silly. Skepticism was finally put to bed when we found a piece of papyrus. That's very recently, within like six or seven years now. Find a piece of papyrus that talked about it. It was an order for a Roman census by Publius Quirinius. You may recognize that name from your scripture because he was ordered. He was the one that ordered the census according to Luke. And everybody said, that's not true. And then we find other evidence. We go, oh, shucks, I guess it was true all along. Yeah, and that's exactly what happens with the Bible. And that's exactly what happens with Bible skeptics and, and, and critics. Give it enough time, you will be proven wrong. I'd love to go over more, but I just I don't have the time. So let's, uh, let me wrap up with this. Psalm 12, 6 through 7 says, The words of the Lord are pure words. They're like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. In other words, something that had been purified seven times was considered totally pure, without anything else. No admixture of any outside sources. That's exactly what the, the writer is saying here. He's saying the Bible is without error. It's totally pure. You will keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. God has preserved his word. Psalm 119, 160 says this, The entirety of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Now I'll close with this statement, and this is my last slide. I want to encourage you this. 
Nothing wrong with asking questions. I don't want you to have a blind faith. But, but Christianity is not that. Christianity is not the blind faith. Christianity is the, is the evidence. It's the faith that stands on mountains of evidence. Atheism is the blind faith. It's the faith that goes, oh, all of it looks designed, but there's not a designer. All of it looks created, but it's not actually created. No. No, there's a designer, and he's screaming. All of creation is screaming about him. His testimony is not hidden. His testimony is sure. Why don't more people believe it? Because they have a hard heart. They have a hard heart. They need God to do a work in their heart. They need their heart, the eyes of their heart, to be opened. Which is why Jesus said, if you have ears to hear, let him hear. If you have eyes to see, let him see. That's what Jesus was saying. If you don't have a hard heart, you'll notice this easily. Now, Christianity is not like every other religion. And it's not like every other religion because it's not a blind faith. It's a faith that stands on sure footing. What is that sure footing? Well, ultimately, that sure footing is the word of the Almighty God. Let me tell you this. When you read that book, you are reading truth. When you read what God has written and you believe it, you're not acting on a blind faith. You're acting prudently on an informed faith, just as your faith should be. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us a testimony so sure that we can read it and that we can literally, we can put our faith in it for our eternity. Thank you for that, God. I ask you to give everyone here faith, faith to believe your word as they read it. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Look at that. It was done before seven. Come on. There's got to be an award somewhere. We'll take a little break.